Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We are going to finish talking about good King Hezekiah tonight, and we will begin in 2 Chronicles and then go back to 2 Kings. We will start in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, just because 2 Chronicles fills in a couple of blanks. It's a fairly short account, and then we'll look at 2 Kings. But I want to give you some sense of where we stand historically, because the objective of these studies is not just to go verse by verse through the Old Testament, which we've been doing, but occasionally we have also leapt forward to notice some of the uh, minor prophets and sometimes the things that Isaiah said and start plugging in the pieces. You may be familiar with the word Tanakh. Have you heard that word? It is a Hebrew word that refers to the Old Testament. And it's based on three letters. In English letters, it would be T and N and K. And those three letters stand for the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. It means the Torah, the law. These are the divisions of the Old Testament, as the Hebrews saw it. Then it began with the law, the writings of Moses. And then there were what were generally called the writings. And then there were the prophets. And so I have been trying to plug the prophets into the writings so that we understand where in the history of the writings the prophets occur. And we have hit another one of those junctions. Last week we talked about Hezekiah's prayer and how God added another 15 years to the life of Hezekiah. But by best estimates, by best biblical archaeology and history, Hezekiah's prayer is right around 701 to 700 B.C., right in that period of time we're talking about. But at 697, three years into that 15-year extension, we come across the prophet Nahum. Now, not a lot of people know much about Nahum. Nahum's not often preached in most churches. And I think it's because they simply don't know where to put him. They don't know how he fits into the biblical history or how he affects the things that are happening. Now, tonight we are going to finish up Hezekiah, who was a good king, and then we're going to bump into a a bad king right behind him, a king Manasseh. But then after Manasseh, we're going to bump into Josiah. And Josiah is such a good king that he actually reigns longer than any of the kings in the south. And it is during that period of time that we also bump into Zephaniah. At the end of the reign of Josiah, we're going to go through a quick succession of five kings in Jerusalem, which sounds like it would take a long time, but it doesn't because some of them only reign for a couple months and then they're gone. But it's during the reign of the last five kings that Jeremiah shows up. And it is Jeremiah and his uh, contemporaries who are predicting the onslaught of the Babylonians, that the Chaldeans are going to come in and finally conquer, and we're going to see the prediction of that tonight. And in 
the deportation of Jews out of Jerusalem and into Babylon, this takes about a, a decade to actually do. And the first wave of deportation is all the high and the mighty and the princes and the well-educated. And Daniel's in that group. So that's where Daniel fits in all this, is that Daniel's taken in. But Daniel knows what Jeremiah has said. Jeremiah is predicting, as the Babylonian captivity is coming up, he has predicted that the captivity is going to last 70 years. And so Daniel's going to refer to Jeremiah and then pray that it really will be a 70-year captivity. And then, of course, God is going to send an angel to him who's going to explain to him 70 times 7 of what's going to happen to Israel in the future. So that's where Jeremiah and Daniel occur. But then during that time, Ezekiel is in still in Judah, and he is prophesying. Ezekiel is among the lower classes of people. He's in the second wave of deportees, and he ends up seeing the vision of God by the river Chebar. And so there are several prophets all in this space of time that I'm talking about because this period of time is so cataclysmic. The place where God has, has chosen to put his name in Jerusalem, in Judea, in the temple. This is all finally going to give way to the enemies of Israel. And so there is a steady wave of prophecies to the people, making them extra, extra guilty. I mean, Jeremiah does preach for 40 years. And over the course of his ministry, he does predict accurately what's going to happen to Israel. And yet, as Alex pointed out last night, not a single convert. But he's right. And then he kind of disappears to history. Some people say that he went into Egypt. Some people say that he went into the Isles of the Sea. There are a lot of pretty good archaeological evidences for the fact that Jeremiah was out of Judah and then evidences of where he may have gone. But he then disappears. And right around that time, we run into Habakkuk. And again, you don't hear a lot of people talking about Habakkuk or Habakkuk. I don't care. Pick one, go with it. I say Habakkuk. So let me just give you some sense of, of the layout here. Hezekiah's prayer, 701 B.C. The vision of Nahum, 697 B.C. Then Manasseh starts reigning in 687. That's the evil reign. And then good Josiah, about 640 B.C. But then 638, Zephaniah's prophecy comes along. About 627 is the call of Jeremiah. So 627 and through that period to about 625, Jeremiah is telling Judah not to forsake the Lord, but to follow after the Lord. By 625, Habakkuk is included in the group, and he is prophesying against Judah. By 622, Jeremiah is proclaiming God's covenant. By 621, Josiah prepares for uh, the temple repairs, which we're going to see probably next week. And then Hilkiah finds the lost book of the law and all that. Now, when we get to the end of 1 Kings and we look at the parallel account at the end of, I said 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and we look at the parallel account at the end of 2 Chronicles, the end of 2 Chronicles says that the Medo-Persians have conquered the Babylonians and that a 
king named Cyrus is raised up. Of course, Cyrus has been predicted by Isaiah 150 years in advance. And then the very next book is the book of Ezra, which begins with an almost identical version of King Cyrus rising up among the Medes and the Persians who take over Babylon. So that puts us into that period of time. And you read about Ezra and Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the temple. That all occurs by the time we get to the end of 2 Kings, which is only a couple of chapters. So you would think, well, then we're done with this in a couple of weeks. But we're not, because we have to go look at Nahum, and we have to look at Zephaniah, and we have to look at Habakkuk in order to understand how they fit. Those are all small books. We're not going to take the time to go through Jeremiah. We will make several references to things that Jeremiah said. But just like Isaiah, we haven't been able to cover Isaiah completely. We're not going to cover Jeremiah verse by verse, but we will make reference to it. So then after King Cyrus and the rebuilding of the temple in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, well, that's the time of the kings of Medo-Persia, and that gets us into the time of Artaxerxes, and that takes us into the time of Esther, and that takes us into pretty much is going to take us toward the end of the prophecies that you're going to see in the Old Testament, right around 400, 425, and then there's 400 years of silence until you get to Matthew. So that should give you kind of the big overview of what's happening in the Bible, and you should be able to look at the list of books at the very beginning of your Bible you should now be able to start looking at the various prophets who are grouped together and are sort of in chronological order. There's a couple like Obadiah and Joel. Nobody knows right exactly where they fit. But you can see them bunched into groups historically so that you can understand now that in the Tanakh, the Jews were systematically spelling out the history and spelling out the prophecies in chronological order, and you have to fit them together kind of like a puzzle to get the whole picture of what's happening. And I have grown up in the church, and the church is supposed to be teaching people about the Bible. And in all my years in the church, I never had anybody explain to me how the Old Testament worked. How do these things fit together? What is the chronology here? And so that's one of the reasons that we've been doing it the way that we're doing it. But the way that we're doing it also means that we're months away from the end of Second Kings. <laughs> it's going to take us a while to get through all of this. But I think it'll, it'll be really rich and really worth it because you'll understand, again, the sovereignty of God written time and time again in the Old Testament and that God is in control of human history and, and you won't sweat the Hillary Donald Trump thing because there have been plenty of world rulers who were in the hands of God, who God was using to bring about his predetermined, foreordained end. And he's still doing that. He's still in the process of doing that. So does that make sense? You get all that? Did I leave anybody out? Turn to 2 Chronicles, like I said, chapter 32. We're going to start at verse 20 and just read to the end of the chapter, which is just a short snippet. But it's going to tell you a little bit about Hezekiah because in 2 Kings, Hezekiah is going to make a tactical mistake in order to protect himself from the incursions of Assyria. 
he is going to apparently make some kind of deal with Babylon, with the Chaldeans, so that if they join forces, they can hold back the Assyrians. And in the process, Hezekiah is going to show his great wealth, the wealth of the king's house, the wealth of the temple, to the Babylonians, to the Chaldeans. And the prophet's going to say, well, then it's all going to be taken from you. You've shown the enemies of God. You've shown the the Gentiles, the riches of God that were dedicated to him. And so Second Chronicles here is going to explain to us that he did have great wealth and great riches, which Second Kings doesn't tell us. Earlier we saw that in order to appease the Assyrians, he was scraping silver and gold off the pillars and out of the temple, which would kind of give you the impression that he was running out of money. But as you'll see, he, he wasn't. Okay, let's read. That was 20 minutes of introduction. But King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed about this and they cried out to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior and commander and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned in shame to his own land. And when he had entered the temple of his God, some of his own children killed him there with the sword. Last week, we saw exactly that in 2 Kings, that God had said to Hezekiah, don't worry about him. I'm going to send him back the way that he came, and then I'm going to kill him in his own land. That actually all occurred. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. And from the hand of all others and guided them on every side. And many were bringing gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem and choice presents to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all the nations thereafter. Okay, here comes the money. This is where the money's coming in again. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. We know all that from 2 Kings, but 2 Chronicles doesn't speak about it because not only does 2 Kings talk about it, but the book of Isaiah talks about it in detail. So there's plenty of attestation to that. The chronicler could just mention it and move on. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received because his heart was proud. And therefore, wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. So here's where Hezekiah made the tactical mistake. And God said, because you've done this and because you were proud, then I am going to punish your descendants. You're going to see that laid out in 2 Kings. We're also going to see it from Isaiah tonight. So hang on to that. However, verse 26, however, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. Part of what God is going to tell Hezekiah is, I'm going to punish your sons, your children, as a result of what you did. And Hezekiah is actually going to think, whew, well, at least it won't be during my lifetime. But my kids are going to have a rough time, but I'll be gone by then, so that's good. And by the way, I totally subscribe to that philosophy. I want you to know. So, okay, just so we have an understanding here. 
Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah had immense riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries of silver and gold and precious stone, spices and shields and all kinds of valuable articles, storehouses also for the produce of grain and wine and oil, and pens for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds for the flocks. And he made cities for himself, and he acquired flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great wealth. It was Hezekiah who stopped the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them to the west side of the city of David. And Hezekiah prospered in all he did. This was one of the big things that Hezekiah did, and the chronicler just kind of, just kind of mentions it. But what he actually did was there was a, a spring of water outside the walls of Jerusalem, and if any enemy, if the Assyrians or even the Babylonians later ever blocked that supply, they were not going to be able to go outside the walls of Jerusalem and get their water supply. And so what he did was he actually rerouted that spring, and it went under the wall of Jerusalem, and then he covered the spring on the outside of the wall so that there was a water source within the walls of Jerusalem that his enemies couldn't get to or wouldn't know where it was so that they could withstand a long siege. So this was a, a major thing that he had accomplished. And even in the matter of the envoys of the rulers of Babylon, okay, this is when he's going to show off his riches. We're going to read about that in a minute. Who sent to him to inquire of the wonder that had happened in the land. I tell you what that's about. Remember last week, we saw that God moved the shadow backwards 10 steps instead of forward 10 steps. And I said to you, this does not have to be the entire cosmology of God moving backwards. It only needs to be God moving the shadow backwards in a limited sense within Jerusalem. Here, the emissaries from Babylon have come to inquire about the miracle that happened in Jerusalem. So they seem to understand that it was a limited miracle that happened the shadow moved backwards and Hezekiah was given another 15 years. But the Babylonians didn't look up and say, oh, look, the sun's moving backwards. There's no record in any of the other chronicles of other kings of other countries of the sun doing that. And so it appears to have been a miracle that happened in Jerusalem. And so there were rulers of Babylon who sent to him to inquire of the wonder that had happened in the land. And God left him alone that he might know all that was in the king's heart. So when the Babylonian emissaries came, God left him alone to see what he would do. And as soon as God left him alone to do his own thing, he makes a massive mistake. What does that tell you? You better have God with you all the time. Because the minute God says, let's see what you'll do. Let's see how you are on your own. You're bound to naturally gravitate to your sinful ways and your sinful proclivities. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his deeds of devotion, behold, they're written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, and in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. 
So Hezekiah slept with his fathers. They buried him in the upper section of the tombs of the sons of David. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem honored him at his death. And his son, Manasseh, became king in his place. And the next thing we're going to read about Manasseh is how bad he was. Okay, so now go back to 2 Kings. Because you need that background to understand what's happening here in 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 20 is where we're going. And now you're going to see Hezekiah, left to himself, start showing off in his ego, in his pride, in his self-sufficiency. I'd be a really good partner. Look at how wealthy I am. Look at how well I'm doing. And that's going to bring about the Babylonian captivity. Start at verse 12. At that time, Baradak Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah listened to them and showed them all his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and the house of his armor And all that was found in his treasuries, there was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. And so this apparently was a prideful act. Look at me. I am a great king that you can depend on. You should partner up with me. Together we can keep the Assyrians from coming on to us without ever thinking about the fact that these are the Chaldeans. These are people who are Gentiles, who are not God's own chosen elect covenant people, and that their goal is to destroy Israel, as so many countries in the Middle East still have the goal of destroying Israel. But he got prideful, as we read, and he showed off. And because he showed off, this is what happened. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They've come from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? Do you think Isaiah already knew? And that's such a leading question. I mean, shouldn't he start with, Hey, what'd they have to say? Did they have a message? No, he says, What did you show them? So Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Because the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day shall be carried to Babylon and nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you shall beget, shall be taken away, and they shall become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Let's talk briefly about fathers and sons here, just so you understand it again. Generations of fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers are all referred to as fathers, the same way that they would say our father Abraham, or the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Same with sons. When speaking of sons, he wasn't saying your immediate children, the next generation. He was saying those that come out of your loins, your 
children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. The same way that the Bible so often talks of the sons of Israel, and it's talking about many generations of Israelites or the children of Israel. The same way that Jesus used the phrase when he said, how often I would have gathered your children together, but you were not willing. And so that language of father and child, I don't want you to think immediate because it really didn't happen in the next king's time. And then Josiah comes along, who's a good king. But then after that, as I mentioned earlier, there's a fairly quick succession of kings, and they do indeed end up under the Babylonian captivity, and everything that's in Hezekiah's house is delivered over to Babylon. Here, you want to see it? Since we're in 2 Kings, go forward just a couple chapters. Go to chapter 24. 24 verse 10. Start there. It says, At that time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem, and the city was under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his captains and his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. And he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and all the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord just as the Lord said. So it's going to come to its fruition a couple of kings later. But just like God had said, these things are going to happen to your children And the king of Babylon is going to take away everything that's in your house, all your gold and silver and spices and goodly things are all going to end up in Babylon. Okay, so now back at chapter 20, verse 18, it says, And some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you shall beget, shall be taken away, and they shall become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. And then... Hezekiah said to Isaiah, and I think this is the place where he's now humbling himself. He was prideful in showing off, but now once he hears the word of the Lord via Isaiah, he now humbles himself, and even though it's terribly bad news, he says, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he thought, is it not so? If there shall be peace and truth in my days, it's good. It's a good prediction. It's a good prophecy. And, oh, yeah, you're going to wait till I'm gone? I'm still going to be king and have all the riches and stuff? Oh, fine. So that that's, works good for me. And now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit that brought water into the city Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son, became king in his place. Now turn to the book of Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah 39. And we'll spend the balance of the night in uh, Isaiah 39 and 40, and then we'll Call it a night, and you'll all be able to get home before the rain hits. Chapter 39 of Isaiah says, 
At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Sound familiar? Again, this is where Isaiah and 2 Kings coincide. And Hezekiah was pleased, and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil, and his whole armory and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. And then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming. When all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day shall be carried to Babylon, nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you shall beget, shall be taken away, and they shall become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. And then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good, for he thought, for there will be peace and truth in my days. Now, the last several chapters that we've read from chapter 36 all the way to chapter 40 corresponds almost verbatim with what we've been reading out of 2 Kings. And then at the end of Hezekiah's life, suddenly Isaiah launches into a really wonderful declaration of God's faithfulness to Israel and God's intention to restore Israel. So at this juncture where Israel, the northern tribes, have been taken into the Assyrian captivity, and after Isaiah has said that Judah is going to go into the Babylonian captivity, Isaiah is always careful, just like all the prophets of God in the Old Testament, they're always careful to say, God is going to punish you, God's going to bring wrath, God is going to bring your enemies on you, but God is going to restore you. And how many times have you heard me use this phrase, all the prophets speak with one voice. They all say the same thing, which is God is going to restore Israel. And as I've said time and time again, it's exactly how you want him to be. You do not want a God who can promise a national group of people for several thousand years that he's going to be faithful to them and restore them and then change his mind. Because then he could say to you, don't worry, I've got you, I'll save you. And then say at the last minute, oh, never mind. I had no idea you'd be like that. I had no idea you'd, you'd do or say that. Israel, for as bad as they were, for as terrible as they were, for as ungodly as they were, for their worshiping of foreign gods, for their harlotries and idolatries, and for all the things they ever did, God said for the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and because of the covenant that he made with David, that he was going to be faithful to his own word, even though they were faithless. And you want a God like that. 
because you simply don't have the capability to be constantly and continually faithful to God. I had somebody write to me recently and say, when Jesus died for all our sins, did he die for the sin of unfaithfulness? And I wrote back, you better hope so. <laughs> because if he counted unfaithfulness as a sin that was a sin he didn't die for, then as Steve talked about last night, it was a sin against an eternal and everlasting God, and that makes it an eternal and an everlasting sin, and you would have to be judged for that sin. Instead, God chose certain people and gave those people to his son, and when his son died and paid for their sin debt, he paid for their complete sin debt, every place that they failed him. And the answer to, did he even die for unfaithfulness, is answered in the fact that God proves himself to be faithful time and time again to Israel in their unfaithfulness. Because God is true to himself. Let God be true and every man a liar. God is going to keep his word, his promises, his covenants, no matter what human beings do. So I'm going to read chapter 40 to you. And then we'll call it a night. Because it starts with comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. After all this bad news, after chapters and chapters of bad news, after all these predictions of being driven away from your land and from your God and from your temple and being put into bondage and the wrath of God executing these things against you, then the prophet says, comfort my people. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended. Oh, wait, 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 wait. When has that ever happened? When did that happen in history? When can we say the warfare of Jerusalem and Israel is over? Not yet. Certainly not now. Not in human history to this point. But did God promise it? Absolutely. Does it matter that he hasn't done it yet? No. Not at all. And so these promises in the Old Testament to these particular people still stand. God who is still faithful knows every word he's ever said. I've used this example many times, but I'll use it again. I believe that Jesus is coming back. Yes. I believe he's coming back. But you know what? It's been 2,000 years. He hasn't come back yet. But I believe he's coming back. Why? Because God said so. Jesus said he'd be back. And on that promise, I believe he's coming back. God said he's going to restore Israel. But he hasn't done it yet. It's been more than 2,000 years. It's been more like 3,000 years. Yeah, but I believe he's going to do it because he said he's going to do it. And if you're going to say, well, he hasn't done it because of the expanse of time, well, then you have to say, well, then I don't believe Jesus is coming back either because there's an expanse of time there. So if you're going to be consistent and say, well, God is done with Israel, national Israel, or somehow the church became Israel, well, then you've got to modify your thinking about Jesus, too, and explain how Jesus really has come back, and then we'll all just as a group become preterists or something. 
but the Bible says it's going to happen. I believe it's going to happen. And the promises of Jesus' return are said far fewer than the promises of the restoration of Israel. And I believe them both. And I believe them because God said them. And that settled it. I promise I'm going to stop pontificating. I, I just need to read. Comfort, O oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended and that her iniquity, all oh, that iniquity, so much iniquity, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of iniquity, and her iniquity has been removed. God's going to remove the iniquity of Israel and Jerusalem that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So God's going to say, for all the sins of Israel collectively through all this time, I'm going to be doubly gracious to you. That's the God we serve. That sounds like the God I know. That's the God I want. I want the God who can look at my sins and say, I've taken care of it. I've covered that. A voice is calling, saying, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now, by the way, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all apply that phrase to John the Baptist. And just so John's not left out, John records John the Baptist saying that that verse applies to him. So we're talking now about the methodology that God is going to use to forgive Israel, which is the bringing about of Israel's Messiah and the bringing about of the new covenant in the blood of that Messiah, the new covenant that is promised to Israel and Judah. Does this all make sense now? I mean, you see how the Bible is only telling one big story and it all fits with every other piece successively and historically and prophetically. It all fits so well that I don't know, again, why people are telling fishing stories and sports analogies instead of teaching the Bible. A voice is calling, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain become a broad valley. And then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Has that happened yet? No. Is there any flesh on the planet that is still denying the existence of God? Yes. Yeah, plenty. But one day the glory of God is going to encompass the earth. A voice says, verse 6, a voice says, call out. And then he answered, what shall I call out? Here's the answer. All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. And surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. I'm tempted at this point to just say it in passing and you can develop it yourself. But I'm afraid that far too many eschatological positions 
essentially deny that the word of the Lord stands forever. It says it on the front of our pulpit, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And there are too many positions that are making excuses for God or explaining away what God has said or saying, well, he didn't really mean that. But God declares time and time again, every word that I said, everything that comes from the mouth of the Lord is going to accomplish what I sent it to accomplish. So the people are like grass, so their opinions don't really matter. And the word of the Lord stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. By the way, bearer of good news, isn't that an interesting phrase? Because the word gospel, the English word, is a contraction of an old English word, good spiel, which means good news. Euangelion in the Greek, good news. Well, it's going to be Zion that is the bearer of the good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling with him. By the way, who is the arm of the Lord? Jesus. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense comes before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and gather them to his bosom, and he will gently lead the nursing ewes. And I think this is part of the reason that Jesus is constantly referred to as a good shepherd. Because the shepherding language is all referring, is all foreshadowing the Messiah of the Lord who is coming, who is called the Redeemer of Israel, who is coming to establish good news in Israel, in Jerusalem, in Judah, who has measured the water in the hollow of his hands. Okay. So God takes all the water of the whole planet And it fits in the palm of his hand. Okay, well, that's not all. He has marked off the heavens by a span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure. So he knows how big the earth is, how much dust is in the earth. And when we look up at the heavens and we can't even comprehend it, in Carl Sagan terms, there are billions and billions of galaxies out there. And we have no idea how many and where they stop and where it all goes. And yet here, we're to understand that God measured it all with a span, which means like with a ruler. He has measured the entirety of the universe and knows how, how big it is and knows every speck of sand on the planet. And he has weighed the mountains in the balance. Does anybody know how much the mountains weigh? Anybody got that? Anybody done the calculations? What a mountains weigh? No, of course not. But he has, and he has measured the hills in a pair of scales. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or who has been his counselor and has informed him? That verse was picked up by Paul in Romans 11, when Paul ends up just talking about who can fathom this who can figure this out 
he brings up, well, who has ever been God's counselor? Who has ever given God advice that God would then say to him, oh, good idea. I didn't think of that. Echoes of Job as well. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or who as his counselor has ever informed him? I like the old phrase I heard a preacher use many years ago. He said, um, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? (laughs) He just never had a thought and went, oh, I never thought of that before. With whom did God consult? And who gave God understanding? For the people, for the humans who think that God needs their permission to do things. Or that God would love it if you make him Lord and Savior. Or that God elects and chooses based on what he knows about people who will elect and choose him. For the people who think that God reacts to their decisions, all you have to do is go back to the book of Genesis. And look at God creating everything. Who was there to check with? There was nobody there but God. God did what he did because he decided to do it. And that is his singular and unique will. And it's still operating. It is still turning and turning. And this old world is still rocking and reeling. Because God is in charge of the decisions that have brought this world to fruition. And to its final end. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor and informed him? With whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? And informed him of the way of understanding? Obviously the answer is nobody. This is all intrinsic to God. This is what is in God. He is the font of righteousness and justice and understanding. And therefore, any understanding or any fairness or any any positive attribute that we have in this lifetime, God had it first. We have it as a result of our relationship with God. Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. By the way, that's where that phrase comes from. That's a drop in the bucket. That's where that comes from. It's a Bible phrase. Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. And they are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. And behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon, the forests of Lebanon, even Lebanon is not enough to burn. Nor the beasts of the world are enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then are you going to liken God? I like that question. Because uh, you can describe some people as, well, they're like this. Or you can say, well, Tom's like Micah. They're both like this. And he's saying, God has nobody you can compare him to. You can't say, well, God's like Alex. I mean, there's just no way that works. You you can't liken God to anybody. He is completely and utterly unique. To whom, then, will you liken God? And what likeness are you going to compare him to? Now, 
as for the idols, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. And he who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot, and he seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not fall over. That's what the word totter means. But do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth that it is he who sits above the vault or the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who searches out the heavens like a curtain and he spreads them out like a tent to dwell in? He it is who reduces rulers to nothing. He it is who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and and they wither. And in the storm he carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? that I should be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these. If you're looking up on high and you're asking who has created these, the NASB translators added the word stars, because if you're looking up and saying who created these, you probably mean the stars. The one who leads forth their host, the hosts of heaven, the hosts of the stars of heaven, he leads them forth and he calls them all by name. We can only see a very small portion of the stars of the universe and we don't even have individual names for all of those. God knows them all by name, calls them out because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired, and his understanding is inscrutable? I have to tell you this quick story. That phrase, along with the phrase, the God of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. I was talking one night to Elder Ward, and he told me about a situation in his church, and it bothered him. It really upset him. And he said, I was up all night. I was walking the floor. I was up two, three in the morning, still upset with myself, still upset with the church, still still just trying to figure out what to do. And so I opened the Bible and it fell open to the place where it said, the God of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. And I thought, well, then there's no point in both of us staying up. (laughs) God's got it. If he's awake and he's aware and he knows what's going on, he'll work it out. So his understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, 
Yet those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary or faint. And that's on the heels of Isaiah predicting all the bad stuff that's coming to Israel and to Judah and to Jerusalem. But then immediately he comes back with, but there's comfort in the midst of that storm. And we need to remember that because we're going to go through our storms. We're going to go through our periods, our trials, our difficulties in life. But we've got to remember that in the end, God who is faithful, God who's got the stars and the dust under his control, God who is in absolute and sovereign command of everything, knows about that too. He knows about your trouble and your trials. And he's going to get you through it, and he's going to take you all the way home. And I think that it'll take five minutes into heaven before we go, hey, that was a good plan. (laughs) All that stuff you put me through and all that stuff you did, aces with me. That's okay. So next week, we'll see a very short story about the, the evil king, and then we'll bump right into good King Josiah, who then there's a fair amount of ink that is dedicated to good King Josiah, And then that's it. Then it's just downhill from there and a quick succession of kings and the Babylonian captivity. And uh, as part of that, as I said when we began tonight, perhaps before we even start getting into the bad king, we're at the point of Nahum right now. So next week we may take the time to kind of look at the prophet Nahum and plug him into 2 Kings and then we'll go forward from there. Okay? That's the game plan. Do you feel like you understand the Old Testament better as a result of these many years of study? Is it helping? Yes. Okay. Because I can do golfing stories. I'll just get Alex to come up and help. I can do fishing stories. I, I can do football analogies. and I can sing up, up, up with people. and we can, Or we can talk about the God who's in control. Okay, we'll do that. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.